Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm a little concerned because last week I had six pages of notes and didn't quite make it and even took an extra 10 minutes. This morning I have seven pages of notes and I'm not ready to start yet because of the current events here at GCA. As Jeff mentioned, Lee passed away Thursday night. This is sometimes a, uh, I won't say it's a hard job or a tough job, even though it can be both of those, but sometimes it's a job that makes you question how you're doing what you're doing and whether you're doing it well. Whenever we lose somebody, like Conrad or like Betty, now Lee, I always stop and think, what would I have said if I had known? I mean, last week, Lee was sitting right there. Last week, I spoke to the man, and he always smiles, and he didn't complain, just his regular self. And what would I have said to him if I knew that he wouldn't be with us this week? I'm really, really glad, I have to say, that the last sermon he heard me preach, Jesus tells us and tells his church there in Smyrna, don't be afraid of death. Look at me, I was dead, and I'm alive forever. I'm so glad that that's what he heard last week. Because Thursday, he went and met that very Lord. And do I have the details right that he died in his sleep? At home in his bed? When you told me that, my first thought was, well done. (laughs) Didn't linger, wasn't in a hospital, died at home in his bed. Well, I look forward to the day that we get to see him again. All right, let's talk about the church at Pergamum. Because I only have seven pages of notes. The church at Pergamum. As I've been telling you for weeks, each of the churches that are mentioned here at the beginning of the book of Revelation represent a particular kind or a particular type of church. The church at Pergamum is the church that is married to the world. You'll see that as we go along. But boy, if there was ever a relevant kind of church to talk about in the day and age in which we live, 
It is the church that is married to the world. Let's read a couple of verses and get a biblical perspective on how God views the church versus the world. I'm going to start in John 15, 19. Now, you can turn to these various passages if you would like, but I'm only going to read portions of each. John 15, 19, Jesus, speaking to his apostles, says, If you were of the world, the world would love you the same way it loves its own. But because you were not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So there's Jesus' own words creating a division between the church that belongs to him, the church that he himself is building, and the world, and the way that the world thinks, and the way that the world operates. And Jesus draws a very clear distinction between the church and the world. If you would, go ahead and turn to John 17, because we're going to read a fairly long portion of John 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It is his intercessory prayer for his own. We're going to start reading at verse 6. Jesus, speaking to God, says, I manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. So Jesus manifested the name, the teaching, the understanding, the instruction of God to particular people, those particular people who God gave to Christ out of the world. Can you see the division between the church and the world? But wait, Jesus creates an even more striking division. I manifested thy name to the men who thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gave them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee, for the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. I pray on their behalf, I do not pray on behalf of the world. Jesus just created another division between those who belong to him. They belong to him because God, who has ever owned them, gave them to Christ. And is that everybody? No, because Jesus divides between those that are his and those that he calls the world. And in his high priestly intercessory prayer, he prays for these that God has given him. And says out loud, I do not pray for the world. That's how large the division is between the church and the world. I pray on their behalf. I do not pray on behalf of the world. But of those that you have given me, because they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine. And thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them, and I am no more in the world. Jesus is about to be crucified, 
He's going to be here on the planet for a short period and then rise up into the clouds to be taken to the right hand of God. Here he is predicting his departure, and he says, I am no longer going to be here in the world, on the physical planet, among the unsaved here on the planet. I am no more in the world, and yet they, those that you gave me, those that I pray for, they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's an astounding thing for Jesus to pray. I assume if anybody can get a prayer through to God, Jesus can. And he prays that those that God gave him, those that he prays for, would have such a sense of unity about them that we would be one in the same way that God and Christ himself are one. You can see now why he says there's the world and then there's the church. Those that belong to me, those that have always belonged to God, those that are being preserved those that are being blessed in the world, those that are being cared for in the world. They're in the world. They're not of the world. They're separated from the world, but they reside here in the world. And Jesus left his own here in the world on purpose. I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them has perished except the son of perdition, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world." that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them. Look at the distinction Jesus continues to draw over and over again. I'm just stressing this so that you can see the division that Jesus expects between the church and the world. And here he says, that he has given his word, the very word of God, he has given it to particular people, those people that God gave to him. Those are the ones that he instructed. Those are the ones that he manifested God and God's word to. I have given them thy word. As a result, the world hates them because they are not of this world. Even as I am not of this world. Jesus himself says, I'm going back to God. I am the Lord of heaven. I am king of kings. I am the high exalted one. I am not of this world. This world is of corruption. This world is decaying. This world is spinning down and dying. I'm the ever living one. I'm not of this world. And they... They that belong to me, those that I have called out of the world, those that are in my church, those that have always belonged to you, those that I pray for, 
those that I preserve, they are also not of the world. Now, if you understand that you're not of the world, how should you act? Should you act like the one who saved you, or should you act like the world? I've given them thy word, says verse 14. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And I do not ask, I do not pray to you that you would take them out of the world. But I pray that you would keep them from the evil one. Keep them from Satan. Preserve them. Protect them. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's verse 16. He has now said that twice. Verse 14 and verse 16, he has said, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So sanctify them. Separate them. Preserve them in your truth. And your word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. That's what we're doing here. That's why we exist on planet Earth. We have a heavenly destiny. We have a heavenly Savior. We have a heavenly calling. And yet we're in this horrific, sin-soaked, constantly stupid world. Why? The same way that Jesus himself came into this world in order to declare God. Jesus then says, I come back to you, Father, and I don't ask that you take them out of the world. Instead, preserve them, sanctify them by your word here in the world. We are part of the consistent testimony of the reality of God in a rebellious hateful world. And that's what the church is supposed to be. That is the purpose of church. That is the function of church, is to continue preserving those of God through God's word so that the world can see the testimony that God himself is real, that Jesus Christ did come to the planet, that he did save his people, and that judgment and eternity are real, and all of that actually exists, and the world, the hateful, sinful, spiteful world, doesn't want to hear that. And so they will hate you, and they will tell you to sit down and shut up, and they will tell you to stop preaching that stuff about Christ. That's the way it was with the first century church. That's the way it's going to be for every generation of the church until Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes back to establish his kingdom. And between when he left and when he comes back, the church and the world are always going to be at odds. And the church is not the world and the world is not the church. And the church is supposed to act differently than the world. It is obvious how the world acts. The world acts according to its nature. It is sinful. It is deceitful. It is lying. It is corrupt. And that is not how the church is supposed to be. I'm only 15 minutes in and I'm already wound up. It's going to be a good morning. <laughs> this isn't the only place where John records the words of Jesus drawing this distinction between the world and the church. First John, 
that short epistle, chapter 2, starting at verse 15. He writes, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. John, writing to the church, gives very clear instruction, do not love the world, and do not love the things that are in the world. If anyone loves this world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's how you can tell who belongs to Christ and who doesn't. The people who love this world and everything this world has to offer, the Bible has already told us they don't have God because they love this world. Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that is in the world, and now he's going to tell us what's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from this world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Doesn't that just kind of sum up this world? Yes. Prideful, arrogant, lustful, fleshly world. And we're surrounded by it. We see it everywhere. It's in all of the advertising and marketing and it's just pervasive in the world in which we live and John says you're not part of that it's not from the father it's not from God it's not from the one who eternally knew you loved you and saved you it's from the world the corrupt sinful world which by the way even Jesus says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air this world is under the control and the dominion of the evil one which is why Jesus says the church that is still here preserve them and keep them from the evil one because he's running rampant down here on the planet so Jesus draws this major distinction that the things of this world are not from the father those are the things that are from the world. And then John writes, this world is passing away. And also its lusts are passing away. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. There's a huge contrast. The church of Jesus Christ, the ones who do the will of God, live on forever. Why? Because of what we looked at last week. He's the ever-living one. He was dead and he lives again. And so we have no fear of death. The contrast is between this world, which is decaying and plummeting downward. Look, even physical science tells us that. Is it the second law of thermonuclear dynamics? Oh, I feel good. That says the universe is in a state of entropy. In other words, things are not getting better. Everything is winding down. You want proof? Buy yourself a wooden picnic table. Put it outside for a couple of winters. It does not get better. It gets worse. That's the way of the entire universe. The universe is decaying and running down. Planet Earth, the Bible says, is going to be burned up. And then new heavens, new earth, this world and everything in it and everything that it presents to you that looks so attractive is fleeting, is going to burn, is of no eternal consequence whatsoever, and yet that's the stuff that the world is chasing after so madly. Paul picks it up in Galatians 6.14, picks up the same theme and says, 
As for me, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world was crucified to me, and I was crucified to the world. That's the division that Paul drew between himself and the world. He said, I'm dead to the world, and that world is dead to me. There are plenty of Christians who would like to think that they are dead to the world, but boy, it sure seems like the world's not quite dead to them. They're still attracted by all that stuff. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is just so pervasive. Last verse, and then I think I've made my point. Romans 12, two verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You should all know this. Paul writing says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The contrast is, don't be conformed to this world. Instead, by the word of God, you understand the things of God. And in so doing, your mind becomes renewed. Your mind becomes refreshed. Your mind comes alive to the things that are really genuinely important. Do not be conformed to this world. Okay, so the instruction to the church is pretty clear. Don't be like the world. The problem with the church at Pergamum is that it became like the world. So let's talk about Pergamum a little bit. Pergamum, sometimes in your different translations, you'll see Pergamus or Pergamon with an N at the end. Pergamum is just the Latin transliteration of the Greek name Pergamus. So whether you're speaking Greek or Latin, that's the difference between Pergamus and Pergamon. It's about 70 miles north of Smyrna, about 18 and a half miles inland from the west coast there. The meaning of the name Pergamus is not exactly clear, but it has been translated as a citadel or as an acropolis. All of its derived meanings always have something to do with being lifted up, being a high place. But there's also an interesting little bit of wordplay in the name Pergamum. The Greek word for being married, for a marriage, for a wedding, that word is gamos. It has moved into the English language. When you use words like monogamy, what does that mean? It means one marriage. Or bigamy, two marriages. Or polygamy, multiple marriages. See, they've all got that gamos word at the very end of them. Pergamy is a word that still exists to this very day, especially in societies that have racial distinctions or class distinctions or monetary distinctions between them. When people intermarry, 
against those social norms. That's an unequal or a mixed marriage. The word for that is a pergamy. And that word still is used today. So in other words, the name Pergamum has this interesting little, very providential wordplay to it that the root of the word is a wrong marriage. This is why I've been saying this is the church that's married to the world. They're not supposed to be married to the world, and yet they are. Pergamus as a city dates back before 1000 BC. It's, it's got a very rich history. If you want to look it up on the internet for sake of time, I'll try to keep from going too deep into the history, but it's fascinating history. In fact, Pliny the Elder, who was a Roman historian of the first century, said that Pergamum was the primary city there in Asia Minor. The Acropolis, do you remember the word Acropolis? Do you know what the word Acropolis means? It means the high place in the city. Acro, high is where we get the word acrobat. Acrophobia, fear of heights, acro. And uh, polis is a city. That's where we get the word politics. So the highest place in the city is called the Acropolis. And that's usually where they would put the temple to whoever their chief god was. But there in, in Pergamus, the Acropolis towered 1,300 feet above the lower city that lay down in the Caicos River Valley in what now is northwest Turkey. The city is still there. It just exists by a different name. Originally, Pergamus was a city-state, but later it became a powerful nation. Last week, talking about Smyrna, I talked a little bit about Attalus, which probably didn't mean a whole lot to you last week. Let me see if I can tie it in for you. In the late 200s BC, Attalus, the king of Pergamum, defeated the Gauls. This is going to become important in a moment. So the kingdom of Pergamum controlled most of Western Asia Minor. In 133 BC, the III, there were a lot of Attaluses. you got to keep track of them by Roman numerals. the III was on his deathbed, and he did not have an heir. And I talked about this last week. So as a consequence, he willed Pergamum, which was the capital of all of that part of Asia, he willed it all to Rome. And then that whole area became the Roman province of Asia. The city itself was a symbol of Greek superiority. And in fact, not only did it have magnificent buildings, it had a library there that history tells us had over 200,000 volumes. Now, that's a huge library, considering that all of those scrolls had to be handwritten. None were mimeographed or copied. 2,000 scrolls, the only other library to compete with it was the library at Alexandria in Egypt. And so history tells us that the Egyptians refused to send their papyrus to Pergamum for fear that Pergamum was going to get more volumes and become the superior library over Alexandria. And as a consequence, Pergamum created a form of parchment, which is actually just processed animal skins to write on. 
And to this very day, it's still called the Pergamena Charta. Legend, by the way, has it here. Your ears will perk up here when I tell you this. Legend has it that Mark Antony gave Cleopatra all 200,000 volumes for the library at Alexandria, and he gave them as a wedding present. That's a wedding present right there. <laughs> I'm going to conquer a city, and then I'm going to get 200,000 volumes, and I'm going to give them to you, Cleopatra. And that is why Elizabeth Taylor was such a good reader. And <laughs> I know. Non sequitur, I was just seeing if you were still listening. Okay, so now that I've told you all that, I hope you retained a little bit of some of that detail. Because there in Pergamos, there were three imperial temples that were dedicated to three particular Greek gods that later got Roman names. One for Asclepius. You're going to learn a lot about Asclepius this morning. The second of the grand temples that they built up there on the Acropolis was to Athena. And then this magnificent temple to Zeus. The temple to Zeus was built by Eumenes II. The only reason I bring that name up is because he is the son of Attalus, who defeated the Gauls, as I said, in the early 200s. And so in order to commemorate that victory by his father, he built this huge marble altar to Zeus, later called Jupiter. And it was considered one of the marvels of the age. Legend says that it was from that hill, that Acropolis there in Pergamum, that other gods came down and witnessed the birth of Zeus, which is interesting because now you get some sense of how gods and demigods worked in Greek mythology. They're actually born, they fight, they interact with people, they die. Not much of a god. The remains of the temple to Zeus there at Pergamum have been unearthed, and there are depictions. There are, you can go and you can look at it on the internet, and I really hope that you do, because it's really fascinating. There are reliefs that depict the gods battling snake-like giants, and this is where Zeus is building his own fame, battling these snaky giants. The altar of Zeus that was originally at the Acropolis, you can still see today. You can look it up on the internet today and look at it because it was taken to Berlin in Germany wholesale. They moved the whole thing brick by brick from Turkey to Germany. That was in 1897, and it's presently on exhibition at a place that's called the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And you can go look at it. All right, so let's talk about this Asclepius, because this is really interesting. Was the other stuff interesting? Are you still with me? Yes. Outside of the Elizabeth Taylor reference? You still with me? Okay. The temple to Asclepius was known as the Asclepium, or the Health Institute. Really, from the 5th century B.C. forward, this cult grew around Asclepius, and people would wander from all over the Middle East to try to find these healing temples that belonged to Asclepius. And they came there hoping that they were going to be healed of their ills. Let me give you some sense of what their 
had to go through. First, they had to go through a ritual purification. And then, of course, they would have to give their offerings and their sacrifices to Asclepius. And then they would spend the night in the holiest part of the sanctuary, which was called the Abaton. And then if they had any dreams or visions, they would report those to the priests of Asclepion, who would then prescribe the appropriate therapies for their healing through a process of interpreting the dreams they had while they laid in the holiest place of the temple. Wait, it gets better. You know what they had covering the holiest place of the temple? Snakes, lots and lots of snakes. Some of the temples used what they referred to as sacred dogs who would lick the wounds of any sick people who would come there with open wounds. But to honor Asclepius, there was this particular type of non-venomous snake that was used in the healing rituals, venomous snakes, not usually as effective. (laughs) They would let the snakes slither around freely on the floor where the sick people and the injured people would go and sleep. And the legend was that if the snakes touched you in your sleep, you're going to be healed. Now, you may think, well... Those silly people way back there in Pergamum, way back thousands of years ago, who would think that snakes have anything to do with healing. In fact, the Hippocratic Oath that's actually named after an ancient Greek physician, Hippocrates, the oath used to begin, the original oath, was I swear by Apollo the physician and Asclepius and Hygiah and panacea, and all the gods and all the goddesses as my witnesses, that according to my ability and judgment, I will keep this oath and this contract. And then they would lay it out. Now, of course, the American Medical Association has updated that Hippocratic Oath so that it doesn't directly mention Asclepius anymore. Because, you know, we're modern now. Has anybody looked at the symbol of the AMA? Do you know what the symbol of the AMA is? It's Asclepius, the same way he has always been represented, holding a staff with a snake wrapped around it. Go to the website. It's still there. Anybody seen an ambulance lately? If you look at any ambulance anywhere in the world, the ambulance will have a star of healing with the rod of Asclepius in front of it. See, Asclepius is still alive and well, just like Hermes. Hermes is delivering flowers. Asclepius is picking up sick people. So before you get too quick on the judgment against those people a couple thousand years ago and say, well, yeah, they believed in all of that stuff, so much of that stuff has just trickled down into our society and is representative of the world we live in. Nothing really changes Everything's the same because people are the same and legends are the same and mythology is the same and all the gods who are not Yahweh are still the same, still active in our world. 
Okay, so let's add to all that. You've got all these temples in Pergamum. You've got all these magnificent buildings. You've got the library. You've got all this very worldly stuff going on in Pergamum. Pergamum was known as a very corrupt city, a very worldly city, but of a special note when we're talking about religion in Pergamum is that they worshipped their political leaders. Sound familiar? Oh, I just thought I'd throw that out there. The city of Pergamum built this magnificent temple to the worship of Caesar Augustus back in 27 BC. So it became the first city to have a temple that was dedicated to the imperial cult. During the days of emperors Trajan and Severus, those are the two emperors who followed Domitian. Pergamum built two more temples for each of them. With each new Caesar that came along, they would build a new temple to them. That's how dedicated they were to Caesar worship. When Pergamum would conquer a country, just like with the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was very into conquering nations, and then they would say, you can worship whatever you want to worship. You have your gods, you have your mythological gods, you have your demigods. You can worship whatever you want to worship, but first among all the things you worship is you have to worship Caesar. According to the New Bible Dictionary, Pergamum was where the worship of the divine emperor had been made a touchstone of civic loyalty during the time of Domitian. So during the time that John is on the Isle of Patmos, it is Domitian who sent John to Patmos because John would not worship Domitian as a god and was promoting this Christian thing. In other words, the world said, here's how you do it. The church said, no, we're not going to do it that way. As a consequence, the world hated the church and sent John to the Isle of Patmos. But during that very time, that became a form of civic loyalty. In other words, you were not a good citizen, a good Roman citizen, if you were not willing to sacrifice first and primarily to the Caesar, who everybody knows is just a man. How do we know it? Because they all died, and they stayed dead. In all of Asia Minor, Pergamum was the city that was most fanatical about Caesar worship. And so, consequently, Christians, of course, were in the gravest of danger there in Pergamum. So how did there even come to be a church in such a wicked city, such a city that was just so involved in various forms of godless worship? Well, in Acts 16, 7, and 8, we read that Paul passed through Mysia, which is the region where Pergamum's located, but we don't have any record of Paul actually establishing a church there in Pergamum. But we do read, if you were to read Acts 19.10, why don't you do that, Steve? Look up Acts 19.10 for us. We read that it was from Ephesus that all of Asia heard the gospel, and that's as much as we know about how the church at Pergamos was established. If you want to see proof of election, boy, it is astounding that in a city as wealthy and politically powerful and dedicated to Zeus and Asclepius and to Athena and above all that to the Roman emperor, a church of Jesus Christ broke out. How? Well, here, read it if you would, Steve. 
So the previous verse says that Paul was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And verse 10 says, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's as close as we get to an explanation for how there was a church in Pergamum. That was all background and introduction in the hope that now we can understand the words that Jesus uses to the church at Pergamum. All right, let's start reading the letter. Revelation 2.12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. The one who has the two-edged sword says. Now this is the first place where we're going to see one of the characteristics of Jesus that John described before he launched into these letters. We saw these various different characteristics of Jesus, his eyes of fire and his feet of burnished brass and hair like wool, standing among the seven candlesticks and having the seven stars in his hands and two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is the first place where you see the two-edged sword of his mouth being used as a weapon. In fact, if you look down to verse 16, you're going to see that spelled out. Verse 16 says, Repent therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So this is the first place where Jesus is not referring to one of his characteristics in order to comfort the church. Instead, he's using it to correct the church and say, change immediately, because I'm coming back suddenly. I'm coming back quickly. I'm coming back without warning, and I'm going to make war with them with that sword out of my mouth. Now, if the sword out of his mouth is a representation of his word, it means he's going to make war against them with his word, which, by the way, he can do. It was with his own word that he created everything, and he can just as easily decreate things with the word of his mouth. What we know for sure is John saw a two-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Christ. Christ said he was going to use that against anybody who brought errant doctrine into his church. He would fight against them directly. We'll get to that. To the angel of the church, which is at Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp Two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. That's a beautiful phrase. I know where you are. You're in Pergamum. You're in the most corrupt capital city of the entire area of Asia Minor. You are surrounded by temples and Caesar worship and a kind of deep depravity that runs through the society. And I know it feels like you're alone. And I know you have to feel very separated and singular. And I know you. I know where you are. I know exactly where you are. And I know what you're going through. That is very reassuring. Because every once in a while, it's real easy to feel like you're the only one. It's real easy to start feeling like it's just us four and no more. It's real easy to start thinking, does God know how tough it is down here? Here Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you exist. And I know where Satan's throne is. Satan, Satan himself, whose name means 
the accuser. The Hebrew word, Satan, he is the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus says, he has a throne in Pergamum. And I know where that throne is. And I know where you are. First thing we have to know about Satan, if you know nothing else about Satan, first thing you have to know is that his chief aim is his own self-worship. He is the very embodiment of egocentricity and pride. This is one of the reasons that the most often recited sin in the Bible is pride, because it comes directly from Satan, the most arrogant, the most prideful of all of the creatures of God. In Isaiah 14, I'm going to start reading at verse 12. Originally, Isaiah is speaking against the king of Babylon and then speaks right past him to Satan who's driving him and says this. Isaiah 14, starting at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, you son of the dawn. You've been cut down to earth, you who defeated the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. And God responds, nevertheless, you will be brought down to Sheol into the recesses of the pit. Okay, that tells you something very important about the personality of Satan. His driving motivation was, I'm going to set my throne up above the throne of God. And all the other angels of God, all the other stars of God, are going to have to do obeisance to me because I'm going to the assembly in the north. I'm going to the place where God himself sits and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I'm going to make myself like the most high God. There's an arrogant boast. Is it any wonder that any place on earth that he can do it, he sets up his throne? Why? Because he wants worship. And what goes on in the temples that have been erected there, the demonically driven temples in Pergamum, what goes on? Worship. And Paul says the worship of idols is the worship of demons. And here Satan has set up his throne Right there in Pergamum. So just think about the amount of pushback, the amount of pressure, the amount of persecution that the church in Pergamum is undergoing when Satan himself has a throne right there, has established himself, has a foundation right in that city. And yet there's this little church there. And God says, I know. I know where you are. I know where you're living. I know what's going on around you. I even know where Satan's throne is. Now, there's three possibilities for what this throne of Satan might be. It might be the altar of Zeus, which I mentioned to you earlier. After all, he was the supreme of the Greek gods. Or it might be the temple to Asclepius who after all was depicted as a snake originally and then became a man with a snake. And throughout the Bible, Satan is referred to as a serpent. Under the reign of Diocletian, 
even the refusal to carve images of a serpent could get you executed. That's how powerful the cult of Asclepius was. Or thirdly, it could have been emperor worship because emperor worship denied that Christ is the Lord and devotion to just a man, just a mere mortal human being, that's blasphemy in God's eyes. So the deceiver, the one who defeated the nations, the prince of the power of the air, is the one who brings this deception to the nations. Maybe it's emperor worship. Maybe it's one of the other temples. Maybe it's all of them combined. What we know is Satan had a firm foundation built in the city, and therefore the church was deeply persecuted. And then Jesus gives an example of the kind of persecution that's going on there in the city of Pergamum just to demonstrate that he knows. He knows every single individual. He knows every single life that he has called to himself. He knows what you're going through. He knows when you suffer and what you're suffering and protects you through it. Look what he says here. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. What an astoundingly beautiful thing for Christ to say. Look at the corruption that is surrounding you, including the corruption of Satan himself. And yet you've hung on to my faith and you did not deny my name or my faith. And then he gives his example. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus, who would know, not only says Satan has a throne right there in the city you're in, he has a foundation there in that city, but he dwells right there. And I know about Antipas, who was sacrificed, martyred in that city. Here's the best story I have been able to find about Antipas. There's a fellow named Andrew or Andreas of Caesarea who was a Greek theological writer. He was once the bishop of Caesarea. He was writing in the late 500s AD. He says the apostle John is the one who appointed Antipas as the elder of the church at Pergamum. And Antipas was martyred during the reign of Nero. That's why Jesus could speak of it in the past tense. He was burned alive in a bull-shaped altar in Pergamum. Here's how it happened. They created a brass bull that they would sacrifice to their gods and to Zeus with. They would shut people up in the belly of the brass bull, light a fire under it, And the people would be roasted alive to satisfy Zeus. By the way, this guy Andrew, or Andreas of Caesarea, he actually wrote the earliest and most significant commentary on the book of Revelation during the era of the church fathers. But what you really need to know from what is written in verse 13 here is Jesus knows individuals. He named them by name. 
said, I know what Antipas went through. I know where he went through it. I know it's part of your history. I know he was a leader in your church. Jesus knows individuals. He knows what you're going through. He knows what the world is doing to you. He knows the things that you're suffering. And he knows whether you're hanging on faithfully to his name, to his word. And it's good to know that he knows it. Verse 13 again, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. You did not deny my faith. You did not deny my name, even in the days of Antipas. Okay, so you find out that Antipas, the leader of your church, is being grilled inside the belly of a brass bull to satisfy the bloodlust of the people who surround you in that city. You're going to give in? Jesus here commends the church for the fact that they held faithful even as Antipas was being burned. Even as that was occurring, the church still held the faith of Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable commendation. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there in your body, in your church, some who hold to the doctrine or the teaching of Balaam. Now, I don't have time to really go deeply into all of this. The clock is working against me. What's the doctrine of Balaam? I will have to synopsize pretty quickly. When you say the name Balaam, people only really know Sunday school stories about Balaam's donkey that spoke. And that's pretty much as much as people know about Balaam. Balaam was not a good guy. Balaam was actually a Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian. That was tougher to say than I thought it ought to be. He came from Mesopotamia. But he was actually a prophet. He was actually a soothsayer, which is why he was called by Balak, who was the king of the Moabites. And the Moabites were concerned because the Israelites, while they were wandering between Egypt and the Promised Land during their 40 years of wilderness, that mob of a couple million people came up against the border of Moab, and the king of Moab was worried about them, scared of them, because he had heard how they had been freed by the Egyptians and how the Egyptian army had been destroyed. And so he wanted somebody to curse the Israelites. And therefore, he called on this prophet and soothsayer, Balaam. And of course, what we know from the story is every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, God wouldn't let him. And he had to keep going back to Balaam and say, what am I going to do? God bless them. I can't curse them. So Balak keeps raising the the ante because he wants this to happen so badly. Finally, what Balaam does is he says to the king, I can't curse them, but you can get them to curse themselves. And here's what you do. Numbers 25, the first five verses. While Israel remained in Shittim, the people began committing infidelity with the daughters of Moab. 
That was the advice that he gave them. Send your best-looking women in among the men because they have been told by their God that they're not to intermarry with any of the people of this country. And so if you can get them to start lusting after your women, they're going to fall. And in fact, to please your women, they're going to chase after your gods to keep peace at home. That's how you'll defeat them. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began committing infidelity with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their God. And the people, the people of Israel, ate and bowed down to the gods of Moab. So Israel became followers of Baal Peor, and the Lord was angry with Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill his men who have become followers of Baal Peor. Numbers 25.9 tells us how many people died. Those who died of that plague were 24,000. 24,000 Israelites who were sacrificed because God was so angry that Israel became like the world. God said, when you go in among the people of that nation, destroy them, wipe them out. Don't be like them. Don't intermarry with them and don't worship their God. You'll have no other God before me. Commandment number one. And it was Balaam who said, I can't curse the people of Israel, but I can get them to hurt themselves because God has told them not to interact with you. So send some women their way, and that will encourage them to start worshiping your God. And sure enough, it worked. Numbers 31, 15, and 16 tells us Moses said after they went in and fought against Moab, but didn't kill all the women who had laid with men, the women who had deceived the people of Israel. Moses said to them, to the army, have you spared all the women? Behold, they caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to be unfaithful to the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that the plague took place among the congregation of the Lord. That's the teaching, the doctrine of Balaam. Rather than following hard after God, Chase your fleshly lusts and then be unfaithful to God so that you get the pleasures of this world. Follow after the gods of those foreign women. Compromise that you get what you want. In other words, be like the world. And God says to the church at Pergamum, I have this against you. You have people in your church who are advocating that. We're saying, yeah, yeah, the word of God. Yeah, yeah, God's told you what to do. Yeah, I get it. But, you know, a little worldliness isn't a bad thing. Maybe you can inculcate some of that into your church, into your world, into your worship, into your society. Just little worldliness. Now, it would be real easy for me to start ranting and raving at this moment. And you all know what I would rant and rave about. And I'm sure that you would agree The church right now, especially in the Western world, is nothing but worldly. Flip on the internet someday and see if they're not what they're calling worship are rock shows. I used to be in rock and roll. We used to like having great big lights and smoke machines and big PAs. That's what churches have now. 
people are giving into those churches and they're spending their money to become more like the world. They're using the same marketing tactics as the world uses. They're presenting the same music as the world uses. And I don't just mean contemporary Christian songs that sound like worldly songs. That's certainly true. But there are churches that actually do whole sermons and presentations on Highway to Hell from ACDC. You can find that on the internet. Just aping the world's behavior, aping the world's philosophy, because that's what brings people in, and they'll bring their wallet, and they'll give you more money so you can build these huge citadels to yourself, these huge temples to foreign gods who are not God. That's the world in which we live. And Jesus says to the church, don't let that in. Don't be like that. That's the context in which he says, repent, therefore, or else I'm going to come to you quickly, and I'm going to make war against you, and I'm going to fight with you with the sword out of my mouth. My word is going to fight against you. I've already told you what to be like. I've told you not to be like the world. I've told you not to chase foreign gods, and here you are doing it, and my word is going to stand against you, and my word is going to judge you, and I am going to fight against you. You do not want to be an enemy of God. And the quickest way to do it is to be just like Israel. They had the commands. They had the very words of God. They had Moses as the leader straight from God. And yet they went chasing after every worldly thing they could find when the lust of their flesh, the very thing John said is from the world, when the lust of their flesh rose up and they desired the things of the world, God killed 24,000 of them just to demonstrate how serious he was about that. And then Jesus says to the church, don't do it. Don't bring that doctrine of Balaam that destroyed Israel. Don't bring that into the church. And it is pervasive in the modern church. Anybody want to disagree? Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Oh, I hate the clock. (laughs) At what point in the history of the church did the church stop standing against acts of immorality and start accepting them? Sadly, it's a pervasive part of the fleshliness of human beings in the church. I have said for so many years, church is a great idea. Church is a great concept. I'm so glad that Jesus came up with the idea of church. The problem with church is that he let people into it. (laughs) And it's the people that keep corrupting the church. And I could give you example after example after example. Whether it's the ordaining of homosexuals. There, there's a good example. Why? Why did they do that? Well, because the world said to. It wasn't the church that said to. The word of God says not to. The word of God says it's an abomination. Don't do stuff like that. And the world says, no, we voted. And it's okay. And so now the church just kind of went along to get along. That would be a perfect example of what Jesus said. Don't do that. That's the doctrine of Balaam. And it's running through the church. It's corrupting people. It's making people worship things that are not Yahweh. I could stomp and fume at this point. In my younger days, I would. But I'll be honest, I'm tired. 
Verse 15 says, and you also have some among you who in that same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is the second time that we've seen the reference to the Nicolaitans. Jesus has already told us that he hates the things of the Nicolaitans. I've told you that that word just means conquering the people. But there is a history to the cult of the Nicolaitans. Theopedia says this about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They write, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans appears to be a form of antinomianism or lawlessness which makes the fatal mistake of thinking that man can freely partake in sin because the law of God is no longer binding. It held the truth on the gratuitous reckoning of righteousness. That's a fact. But they also supposed that just mere intellectual belief in this truth was enough to have saving power. Nicolaitans in the second century seem to have continued and extended the views of their first century adherents, holding to the freedom of the flesh and freedom to sin, and the teaching that the deeds of the flesh have no effect on the health of the soul and consequently have no relationship to salvation. In other words, they deny what the Word of God says. The Word of God says, I'm holy, be holy. The Nicolaitan doctrine was, God's going to cover it all, live like hell. Jesus says, you have some in your church who believe that. Paul actually addressed it when he said, what are we going to say then? Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? His answer is, no, certainly not. The Nicolaitan doctrine would say, yeah, that's okay, because grace covers everything. Grace conquers all. It's all under the blood. It's all under the cross. So you can live any old way you want to. That is a denial of the word of God and of the sanctity of Christ and the fact that you are separated from the world. That's living worldly. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Christ is an avenging judge. He is going to not only build his church, but he's going to cleanse his church. He's going to preserve his church, and he's suddenly going to come. He's suddenly going to arrive, and then judgment is going to start in the house of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no man knows but he who receives it. That seems cryptic at first reading, except that it was actually very current with the society that this church was living in. They would have understood this phraseology. First, the hidden manna. If you read Exodus 16, 33 and 34, Moses tells Aaron to take a jar and put an omer of manna into it and then to place it before the Lord to keep it for the generations to come. And so then Hebrews 9, 3 to 5 says that behind the second veil in the tabernacle, which is called the most holy place, there is a golden altar of incense and an ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. That's the hidden manna. They know that there was some manna which was a 
demonstration, a proof of God's provision, God feeding the Israelites for 40 years, every morning, bread on the ground. Therefore, God knows how to provide bread. He knows how to provide sustenance. He knows how to take care of you. Jesus likened himself to the bread that came from heaven. He also said that man does not live by physical bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father. Therefore, bread was a very important part of first century culture. Without bread, you didn't eat. And in fact, that is combined with the idea of the white stone. The history of ancient Roman Customs tells us that when they had their athletic games, the winner of any particular contest was awarded a white stone that had his name inscribed on it. That actually is kind of the beginning of trophies, that you would have something inscribed with your name and given especially to you. And he was also given a loaf of bread, which I think... In our world, where you can just go up to the store at the corner and get a loaf of bread, we think, what? A loaf of bread? But it was vital every day in the Middle East a couple thousand years ago. What's job one? You wake up every day, and what's job one? Find food. Find food. you got to have food every day. You don't have refrigerators. You don't have microwaves. It's tough to find good food. And so a great gift to a victor was to give him fresh bread. So they would give him bread along with this white stone that they would write his name on. And then that white stone became like a ticket for him so that he could enter all of the special award banquets that were going on afterwards. It proved that he was a victor in his particular sport. Jesus says to those who overcome, to those who maintain the faith, to those who do not deny him to the very end, he's going to give them a victor's stone, which has their name written on it, a new name that nobody knows except the person who receives it. Jesus is going to name you with his own heavenly name. That may even be the name that's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. We don't know. What we know is names are very, very important in the Bible, and Jesus, who named you in the first place, can rename you. The same way, I know I'm talking fast. I'm just trying to get you out of here. The same way that the church in Smyrna was told, when you conquer, when you overcome, when you hold the faith, I'm going to give you a victor's crown to wear. I'm going to give you a laurel wreath. That reached back to the Greek games. Same thing here with the white stone. It reaches back to the Roman games, and the victor was given a white stone with his name on it. Jesus says, when you become the victor, I'll do the same thing for you. So it is a sign of conquering, of victory, of maintaining your faith to the very end. And I'm here to tell you now, if you've heard nothing else that I've said today, this world, this stupid, corrupt, crazy world has nothing for you. Not a thing. I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. The things that matter, the things that count are eternal. And eternal righteousness is given to you in exchange for faith. That's how it was in Abraham's time. That's the way it is eternally in heaven. In the great economy of God, he is going to exchange eternal righteousness for that faith that you have maintained in this lifetime. The trials, the difficulties of this lifetime are for the building up of your faith, for the refining of your faith, for the teaching of your faith. And then you receive joint heir with Christ. And that is so much better than anything this world can offer you. The world should not have any say in what goes on in the church of Christ. 
The church belongs to Jesus Christ, was founded because of Jesus Christ, is sustained by Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he said, you're not of the world. Don't be like the world. I've separated you from the world. I pray for you. I don't pray for the world. Therefore, don't let the world influence your faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, the world's going to hate you. Yes, the world is going to oppress you. It always has. Today is no different. Maintain your faith. Hold on to Christ. That's the lesson of the worldly church at Pergamum. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.